You're listening to audio from Redeemer Anglican Church in the urban heart of Richmond, Virginia. We are a parish committed to gospel formation for missional presence through seven essential practices. Telling the biblical story, embracing a new identity in Jesus, finding belonging in the church community, cultivating virtue through redemptive habits, understanding our context in this current cultural moment, laboring in renewed vocations for the common good, and reordering our imaginations through beauty in the arts. To learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. First reading is on page 944. It's from Romans chapter 8, verses 15 to 17. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The word of the Lord. And our second reading uh, takes place on page 822 in your Bible. Please stand uh, for the reading of the gospel. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, Lord Christ. Amen. Let's be seated. Well, once more, good morning, church. Good morning to you all. For those of you who are new and visiting for the first time, welcome to Redeemer. So glad you're here. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Dan. I'm very grateful to serve here as a pastor. Now, by way of orientation, today is the second Sunday in the season of Epiphany. We anticipate Christ in Advent, we celebrate his arrival in Christmas, and then in Epiphany, we behold the wonder of his light in the darkness. And during this Epiphany season, what we're doing as a church is we're taking some time to clarify and focus our reason for existing as a church. Redeemers, why? Why does Redeemer exist? We've distilled that answer down to one sentence, just one sentence, to practice gospel formation for missional presence. Why does Redeemer exist? To practice gospel formation for missional presence. We desire for the good news of the gospel and the renewal of all things in Jesus to so radically reshape and transform us that it enables us to participate in God's missional presence here in the city. And this radical reshaping happens as we take up and embody and practice the seven essential practices of the ancient church. Story, identity, belonging, virtue, context, vocation, and imagination. You can read a bit more about those on the inside cover of the liturgy you received when you walked in. If you want to flip there, you can look at them there. And each of these seven practices goes along with an essential human question. 
that tries to answer an aspect of what it means to be a human being. Last week, we talked about story, answering that fundamental human question, what story am I in? This week, we're talking about identity, answering that fundamental human question, who am I? As we begin, let me say a prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray right now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So how do you know who you are? How do you go about answering that question? St. Augustine wrote a very long time ago, men go forth to wonder at the heights of the mountains, the huge waves of the sea, the broad flow of rivers, the extent of the ocean and the courses of the stars and omit to wonder at themselves. And he's getting at that idea that of all the great and deep mysteries of the universe, nothing is more mysterious than human beings. And in some ways, nothing is more mysterious to you than yourself. John Calvin puts it a different way. He writes, without knowledge of the self, there's no knowledge of God. And without knowledge of God, there's no knowledge of the self. And he's, his point is that in order to know yourself, you must, di- you must be in dialogue, in conversation with God. And interestingly, and maybe even surprisingly, if you want to know God, you also have to know yourself. Now, Socrates, I think, puts it even more simply than both of them. He just writes very simply, know thyself, which is such a mic drop line, right? Like imagine just Socrates getting up here in his toga and just grabbing the microphone and saying, Redeemer, know thyself, drops the mic, walks off stage. Um, So we're talking about what it means to know yourself, to answer that question, who am I? And both of the texts that were read this morning by Lewis and Alex are texts that deal from the Bible with this issue of identity. And before we explore them, we have to recognize something about ourselves and each other in the room right now, which is that none of us arrived here this morning as a blank slate. None of us came into this place with no identity, with no sense of self, with no personhood. All of us already have a sense of self. And you might be happy with who you are, or you might be frustrated with who you are, but we are all already in the process of answering this question, who am I? And that's why we use this language. When it comes time to talk as a church about gospel formation for missional presence, we have to recognize together that all gospel formation is counter-formation. It is the process of forming and shaping, actually reforming and reshaping because all of us are already shaped in some ways. We already have some semblance of a sense of identity. And the work that we're going to do together this morning is the work of counterformation, of reshaping what is already there. So let's talk about what's already there. How do you go about getting an identity? I'm going to propose that there are kind of three basic modes of getting an identity. And these are a bit historical. We're going to sort of trace our way through history. Um, The first is the traditional mode, the traditional way of getting identity. The second is the modern way of getting identity. And the third is the the postmodern way of getting an identity. And we'll talk about these one at a time. First, the traditional way. The traditional way of getting identity trades on uh, the theme of expectation. What are family and social expectations for you, and to what extent do you live up to or live into those expectations? Your identity, therefore, is something that you're, you're kind of born into. It's there waiting for you on the other side of your birth. Uh, philosopher Richard Wardy, uh, who taught at Princeton and UVA and Stanford, has this to say. He writes, 
Humans are a product of their environment. We have no nature. Society constructs it. It's the idea of identity coming from the outside in. And uh, if you, th- you might choose to think about it this way, the Murata family immigrated from Italy uh, a couple of generations ago. My great-grandfather was born in Italy, and he came over um, with his wife and his kids And he worked on the railroad in New York. And then my grandfather worked on the railroad in New York. Um, But then my father and I actually went vocationally in different directions. And that's very untraditional of us, right? If we were sticking to the traditional mode of identity formation in its truest form, then I would be working on the railroad right now instead of talking to you because that's what the Murata family does, or at least that's what men in the Murata family do. Now, the most important factors in identity formation in the traditional sense are things like race and nationality, economic class, cultural heritage, and family expectations. To do the work in the traditional mode is to embrace the expectations of your parents and society. Words like should or words like ought become very important. What should you do? Who should you be? What ought you to be? Those are the guiding and shaping factors. And in this, you embrace an identity that's already available to you. So traditional identity is kind of like clothes that are hanging for you on the back of the door in your bedroom. It's like the clothes are there, you're born into it, and to grow up is just to kind of grow into those clothes. It's there waiting for you. The only journey is the journey of growing up. Now, that's very different, as you're probably already ahead of me in this, that's very different from a modern mode or a modern way of forming identity, which, is view, which views human beings very differently. In this view, people are more autonomous, independent individuals. The philosopher we look to here would be Soren Kierkegaard, who would say, a human being is a potentially authentic individual. And it's so curious that he uses the word potentially, meaning that you might become an authentic individual or perhaps you might not. It all depends on what you do. Um, if you need some, some cultural touch points here, you might think about a movie like Disney's Lion King, where what does Simba have to do in order to become his true self? Well, he has to leave Pride Rock, right? And he has to go on a journey of self-discovery. And only out there on his own does he discover who he really is and is then able to return as his true Simba self, right? If you need um, something that's not animated, you might think about the movie Sound of Music, uh, which is a Murata family favorite. So what happens? How does the movie begin if you've seen this? Well, there's this wonderful young woman, Maria, who has become a a, sort of like a nun in training. She's part of a, a convent And there's something about this that just doesn't seem to fit for her. And so she must leave the convent where she's taken vows of stability and fidelity. She has to break her vows and leave the community to become the person that she was always meant to be. And as she does so, she leaves triumphantly singing, climb every mountain, ford every stream, follow every rainbow, till what? You find your dream, right? What does it mean to do the work in a modern mode of identity formation? Well, it means you don't look outside yourself to society or family or somebody or something else. You have to look where? Within yourself to discover your dream and in discovering your dream to discover your true self. Be true to yourself and your dream. In this, you will discover your true identity. 
Now, as you're listening, if you're thinking to yourself right now, like, okay, I hear you, traditional, modern, neither one of those seems to fit me. Let's keep going. Let's move on to postmodern. If the traditional way of forming identity is to embrace societal and family expectations, and the modern way is to go on a journey of self-discovery, the postmodern mode is more self-construction or self-building. Um, the philosopher we would look to would be John Paul uh, Sartre, who writes, we are a product of our free choices. We have no nature. We construct it. Existence precedes essence. Charles Taylor, Catholic philosopher, puts it a little bit of a different way. He says, in the past, you make money and you have sex to build community and culture. Now, you make money and you have sex to build an identity. And it's that word build that is so key there. Identity is something in this form. Identity is something that you construct. It's something you kind of build up over time. Now, if you're looking for your Disney go-to movie for this one, you would actually go to The Little Mermaid. Ariel, what does she have to do? She must reject the authority of her father and trade her voice, which is her inherited gift, right? In order to do what? In order to change her body so that her inner sense of self matches her outer sense of self. Now, I'm not trying to ruin The Little Mermaid for you, okay? Maybe it's not that complicated. Maybe it just has good lyrics and it's a good song. Um, so if you need something maybe a little bit, let's get a little bit darker for a minute. Um, maybe you've seen the movie The Mask with Jim Carrey. What is the setup of that movie? Well, you've got this guy, Jim Carrey, who's pretty reserved. He actually has a lot of repressed desires that haven't made their way out yet. But through putting on this mask, his inner desires are unleashed. He becomes uninhibited, free in all these ways that he's never able to be free before. Something inside of him becomes expressed on the outside. How? Through putting on a mask. We're going to get just a little bit darker still. Um, perhaps you've seen Fight Club. I'm not necessarily recommending it, but what is, what is the kind of setup of that movie? You have a character who has constructed, almost unintentionally, an entirely separate identity in order to express and live out uninhibited all the ways and all the things that he would like to be able to do but feels that he can't do. The postmodern self understands that every human being is attending a masquerade ball and everybody is wearing masks. And when does the mask become your true self? When you choose it. When it's not a mask that somebody else has put on you or someone else has required that you wear. It's when you cast off the false mask and you put on the mask of your choosing. That's how you become a true and authentic self in the postmodern construct. It's a poem called Invictus by William Ernest Henley who goes, that I think encapsulates this. It goes like this. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloodied but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. It's the sense of I am in charge of who I am becoming. I construct my identity. I construct myself. And I might try on and put on a variety of masks, but eventually I will choose one. And in the choosing, that will become true of me. 
So to do the work in the postmodern sense of identity means to try on masks until I find the one that I want to choose. Trying on identities is part of the journey. Now, we can kind of summarize these this way. So the traditional mode of identity formation is living up to and embracing family and societal expectations. The modern way of forming identity is this journey of inward self-discovery, finding my true self like it's buried somewhere in here. And if I just keep digging, eventually I will unearth it. And then the postmodern way is trying on masks and identities until you find something that feels like it fits. So I ask you, Which mode of identity, discovery, or formation have you been engaging most recently? And as I ask that, I would imagine that some of us are actually doing a version of all three of these at the same time, right? Because we live in Richmond, which is not quite the true South, but it's almost there. And the further South you get, the more traditional modes of identity kind of come into play. All of us are living under some sort of weight of societal and family expectations. Very difficult to completely 100% cast that off, right? It's a factor. But then there's also a bit of the modern way going on in all of us, isn't there? There is a sense in which we all think, there's something in me. I have to keep digging until I find the true me. The true me isn't out there. The true me is here, right? But then in another sense, we are at a masquerade ball. And you know that people are wearing masks in this room right now, right? Maybe going to church is part of the mask that you wear. Or you have a sense that in a different stage of life, you used to wear one kind of mask, but now you're wearing a different one. And maybe this one feels like it fits a little bit better. Or maybe you're sensing right now it doesn't fit and you're looking for the next mask to try on. You see, there are actually problems with all three of these modes of identity formation. And I just want to name a few of them right now. The first problem with all three of these modes of identity is that human beings including all of us in this room, are internally conflicted creatures, meaning we want things that are in conflict with each other, that don't go together. We want to be impressive and powerful and admired, but we also want to be loved and adored. We, we want to earn our love, and we also want to be loved unconditionally. We want to merit love, and we also want to be loved when we don't merit it, Right? We want to be successful and we also just want to be content. We want to go wild and let our passions run free. And and we also want to be self-controlled and disciplined, right? How do you sort out which of your internal desires is the real you and which ones, which desires are the false you? How do you tell? Because you have desires inside of you that don't go together. So which one's really you? Human beings are conflicted internally. Also, our desires, second, are unstable, meaning they change. Over the years, we want different things. All of us are going through a season right now where we have things inside of us that we crave, that we hunger for, that we want. And in 10 years, you might not want those things anymore. And 10 years ago, maybe you didn't want them. So here's the hilariously tragic reality. Remember the movies and clothes and friends and hobbies that you used to like when you were younger? How silly do those things look now? Don't you kind of feel like that old version of yourself was kind of an idiot, right? Do you know what future you is going to think about present you? Kind of an idiot. (laughs) This thing just kind of keeps moving on you. You'll look back at this moment in your life and you'll think, I can't believe I wanted that. 
And so our desires change. They're unstable. So we're conflicted, we're unstable. Third, we're naive. Meaning, we tend to think that this identity thing is something that we're just working on on our own. And we're not influenced by other people in this. And why can we talk about traditional and modern and postmodern modes of identity? You know why we can talk about those things as stages? Because all of us tend to do mostly the same things. We all go about these things in such similar ways, even while thinking that we're independent. We are not autonomous or independent individuals. We're not totally free. We are deeply influenced and swayed by the opinions of other people around us, sometimes even held captive by those opinions, which is why when you go about choosing an identity, you know the next thing that you have to do? You have to get a community of people around you to affirm it, right? Because none of us can do it on our own. And so whether you're doing this in a like church Christian-y kind of sense, or whether you're doing it um, in some other way. Everybody needs a community around them to affirm their identity. So let's not be naive. So these modes of identity formation are conflicted, they're unstable, they're naive. Fourth, they're arrogant. All of these identities are performative, whether traditional or modern or postmodern. It's something you have to work to keep up. It's something you have to keep going. And in order to do it well, in order to perform your identity well, the only metric of judgment or evaluation that you have is how everybody else is doing their identity. And so the only way to feel like you're doing well in your identity is to be doing better than somebody else or maybe lots of somebody's. And so there's a deep arrogance to these modes of identity because the only way to, be, to feel successful in them is to outperform somebody else in their identity. Things like success and beauty and wealth and respect and admiration are all done in relation to others. How do you know if you're wealthy? Only if other people are less wealthy than you, right? Now, conflicted, unstable, naive, arrogant, fifth, isolating. Meaning that these modes of identity are disconnected from the material world, from community and from work. Wendell Berry, whose uh, poem we read to begin this service, has written this unsettling book called The Unsettling of America. And in it, he has this very savage thing to say (laughs) about identity. He writes, it seems likely that the identity crisis has become a sort of social myth, a genre of self-indulgence. It can be an excuse for irresponsibility or a fashionable mode of self-dramatization. It is the easiest form of self-flattery, a way to construe procrastination as virtue-based, based on the romantic assumption that who I really am is better in some fundamental way than the available evidence suggests. Isn't that hilariously tragic? (laughs) But isn't that how all of us work? I have this sense that who I really am is better than the way most people think about me, right? Because what most people have to work with, with me, is just the available evidence, what I say and what I do. And yet my opinion of myself is much higher than that. That's why all of us tend to think that if people really understood, they would think better of us, right? Isn't it funny that we all think more highly of ourselves than other people do? How strange. So 
five problems so far. We're conflicted. Our desires don't go together. We're unstable. Our desires change. We have this naivete. We think we're doing it alone, but actually we're heavily influenced by other people. There's an arrogance because we're performing against one another in our identities. It's isolating. It disconnects us from how we're actually living because we think our inner life is somehow different from what's happening uh, outside in our real embodied lives. And then finally, and kind of categorically, all of these identities are enslaving, meaning that they are all performative. They all require us to stay on this identity treadmill that you can never get off. You must keep doing the work, whether it's traditional or modern or postmodern, to keep your identity going. And if you stop, you will lose your sense of self. Now, contrasted to this problem of enslavement or entrapment in identity comes the good news of the gospel. And I hope that you heard it in our readings that Lewis and Alex read just a few minutes ago. Let me reread uh, each of these for you. First, let me reread Romans chapter 8, which contrasts this identity as enslavement with a different kind of identity in what the author calls adoption. And let's hear the contrast here. Romans chapter 8, verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, this adoption as sons, it includes daughters as well. It's kind of old, kind of categorical language. Adoption as sons and daughters. And this word Abba, I just absolutely love because it's the language of a child. It's the language that a little kid would use to address their parent. Now, children are heirs. What do children have to do? How well do children need to perform in order to earn their inheritance? They don't have to do anything. It is merely given to them because of their status as a child. Now, how do you achieve or get or access that kind of status? What sort of story does the Bible tell about how you become a child of God? Well, it's actually buried in that phrase, fellow heirs with Christ, or as another translation says, co-heirs with Christ. You see, through faith in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus on your behalf and union with Jesus in baptism, God the Father adopts you as a child and grants you the same status in the family of God as Christ, the Son of God. That's why it says fellow heirs with Christ or co-heirs with Christ. You are given a status equal to Jesus in the family of God. Some of you might know the story of the prodigal son. I won't tell it in all its detail, but I'll give kind of a recap. There's the story that Jesus tells in the New Testament called the parable of the prodigal son. And in it, if you just think about this in terms of identity, you have a child who grows up in a family has full child status in that family, but is unhappy, unsettled, desires something different, something more, rejects the father, rejects the family, and goes on what you might call a journey of identity. And you could sort of make arguments about whether it's a more traditional journey or a more modern journey or a more postmodern journey. But either way, this child leaves home 
and goes out away from the family and away from the father to go figure out who he is or who she is on their own. And where does that terminate? It ends in something akin to slavery. The prodigal child is working like just hand to mouth, just to survive. It's a miserable, impoverished, enslaved lifestyle. And this child begins to think to themselves, I think it might be better for me to go home. But the child is thinking to themselves, if I go home, I think I'm just going to be enslaved in a different way. I think I'm just going to have to like work for dad or work for family. And there in the story, I think we see the fundamental reason why so many people do not seek their identity in Jesus, in God, in the, and, and don't do that in the church. Because they're experiencing the exhaustion of being on the treadmill, of being on this like never-ending performative identity path. And they think, if I go to Jesus, or if I go to God, or if I go to church, what I'm going to have to do is just get on a different treadmill, on the religious treadmill, right? I'll just perform my identity in a different way. And so the prodigal child is going home thinking that's what he's going into. And what happens? Well, on the road, the father goes and runs out and meets the child and then begins what you might call a re-adoption ceremony where this child has divorced himself from the family, estranged himself from the parent, from the dad. And the dad, through putting a ring on the child's finger, through wrapping a cloak around the child and for calling for the servants to throw a great celebratory feast, there's like an adopt, a re-adoption ceremony happening. This child is being re-granted child status in the family. Which means, what does that kid have to do in order to then receive another inheritance from the dad? Nothing. No performance is asked of or required. Now, this is why, listen if you can, the kind of identity that you can have in God through Jesus is so different from every other kind of identity. It's not just different in content, which is the way we tend to think about it, which is, well, I'll do identity stuff over here in my work or in my, you know, like sexual relationships or in my job or like in all kinds of things, I'll kind of work to perform my identity. And then over here, I'll just like do a bunch of religious stuff. And that's how I'll have a Christian identity. No, they are not different in content. They're actually different in quality and kind. In one, in all of these other modes, you have to perform your identity. And in Christ, you can stop performing. You can get off the treadmill. You can receive, not achieve or perform, but receive status as a child in the family of God. And once you've received it, it's yours. And nobody and nothing can take it away. If you look on the cover art in the front of the liturgy when you walked in, um, that you received when you walked in, you'll find a painting there uh, by Colleen Briggs. It's called Carried. And we chose this one because I, I look at just the expression on the face of the sweet little girl in her father's arms. And it's this look of, of agony, of pain, of suffering. You can see how hurt she has been. Something's happened right before this scene or maybe long before this scene that has exhausted her, that's hurt her, that's worn her out. But now she's safe. Now she's in dad's arms. 
Now everything's going to be okay. This is a picture of what it can look like to finally come home to God and to be at rest and to be at peace. Still exhausted and kind of burnt out and wounded from all of the performative identities that we've been trying over the years, but coming home to God and being at peace. This is why you need God to name you and you can't name yourself and you can't let anybody else name you. This is why in our gospel lesson that Alex read a few minutes ago from Matthew 16, Simon Peter says to Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He's naming Jesus and he's naming Jesus correctly. It's what it looks like to have faith in Christ, to look to Jesus and to go, you're the savior. You're the one, you're the one I need to rescue me. And then Jesus in response to Peter correctly naming him and expressing faith in him, then renames Peter. Jesus says to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven, I tell you, you are Peter, new name. And on this rock, I will build my church. This is what happens when you come to Jesus in faith, naming Jesus as the Christ. You're the savior, you're the one I need to rescue me. And Jesus will in in turn name you or rename you. This happens in baptism. Some of you may have noticed in the service last week that whenever we baptize somebody, there is a moment of naming. It's not cute. It's real. There's also this verse that depicts this in the very end of the biblical story. Some of you might not have heard of this. The very end of the biblical story in the book of Revelation, there is a scene that is described where all who have had faith in God through Jesus, who have become a part of God's family, are, after the resurrection, given a stone with their true name upon it, a name that only God knows. And in that, what you can see in that kind of visual metaphorical image is that in the end of days, you will fully and finally receive your identity from God in a way that dignifies this long journey that we've all been on as we all search for our identity and try to figure out who on earth we are and try to answer that human question, who am I? At the very end of time, God will give you your name and you will know in him fully and finally who you really are. Now, if you think about it, the benefits of receiving this identity in Christ actually respond to all of the problems that we named earlier, to the problem of incoherent desires, conflicted desires within us. This gives you an integrated identity, an integrated self, Jesus is not conflicted. He is the most perfectly integrated human being to ever live. And as your identity is in him, your desires begin to align with his. To the problem of changeable desires within yourself, this gives you stability. Adoption is not a temporary arrangement. You are not a foster child of God. You are not a like unwanted nephew living under the staircase like Harry Potter in the Dursleys. You are adopted. It's permanent. It's stability to the problem of naivete, where we think we're not influenced by other people, this gives you a sober identity, recognizing exactly who you are and who is influencing you, not pretending to be autonomous and independent. To the problem of arrogance, this gives you humility. You can't be a better child of God than anybody else. You you can't outperform your Christianness (laughs) to anybody else, even though a lot of people think they can. When you recognize that you do not deserve to be adopted... When you know that your adoption is a gift of grace, your identity becomes a humble gift, not a prideful performance. To the problem of isolation, this disconnection from your lived life, this is a connecting identity, 
connected to the material. That's why we use sacraments to mark identity in, in the gospel, in, in the Christian church, because what happens in the material world implicates you and you are implicated in it. Adoption is not this imaginary thing that just happens in your mind when you want it to. Adoption is something that happens in the real world, in the material world. That's why we use baptism and the Eucharist, these sacraments, material goods in the world to mark and uh, lay out identity for us. More than that, the identity in Christ places you in a church family with these real other people. You are implicated with them and they're implicated with you. Finally, and maybe most importantly, this kind of identity in Jesus is freeing, not enslaving. A slave has to perform to live. A child simply lives A child is free in ways that a slave can hardly imagine. So what would it be like to have such a strong sense of identity, be so secure in who you are, that you are free, no anxiety, no stress, no fear, no sense of competitiveness about who you are or your place in the world? Listen, this kind of identity that we're talking about is one that is received. It is also one that is practiced. Because you and I, remember, must do the work of counterformation. We have all kinds of other pressures upon us that are forming us and shaping us in all kinds of ways. And all of us have spent years trying to form an identity through some other means. And those old identities die hard. And so, in order to engage this gospel formation for missional presence, to live into your childlike status as an adopted son or daughter of God, it's going to take practice. Not practice in order for it to be real, but practice in order for you to live into it. And so we're going to practice later in the service. We're going to practice when we pray the Lord's Prayer, starting with the words, Our Father in our language, in our liturgy, reminding ourselves that we are children of God. It happens whenever we baptize new believers into the church, whether children or adults. It happens whenever we come to the Lord's table. We come to the Lord's table doing what? Receiving our hands, our hands outstretched and open in this posture of reception, recognizing I receive my identity from Jesus. And we do it every week. It happens in our small groups as all of you gather in each other's kitchens and living rooms to remind each other of your identity in Christ because we tend to drift, don't we? Friends, Redeemer exists to practice gospel formation for missional presence. And we do this as we receive an identity from Jesus so that that identity in Christ becomes the very thing that we have to offer to our neighbors and to our city and to this world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to get off the treadmill of performing our identities in any other way and to simply rest and to receive our identity only in you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening. To connect with our team or to learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. We look forward to knowing you. Go in peace.